I think maybe we should just pray and go home. Yeah. One of my favorite authors is Brennan Manning, and uh, in his book, Ruthless Trust, he says one of the essential things for us as Christians, as the church, is to have artists, authors, and clowns, because it reminds us, and, and when you hear that, you know, I mean, how many, what can you say in a sermon that's as deep and meaningful as that? It really is a joy to be with you all today. Um, Huntsville Christian Church. I'm Perry Rubin. I'm the campus minister at Auburn. Did I turn myself on? That's a weird question, isn't it? <laughs> um, we are, I'm the campus minister at Auburn Christian Fellowship. Been there 19 years, my wife and I, and our children as they've come along. And, uh, you know, in Sunday school, I got to tell a little bit about our ministry. I won't spend any time doing that, but I wanted to say at the very beginning this morning how thankful I am for this church. Uh, whether you know it or not, Huntsville Christian Church was with us in the very beginning of ACF. And I think there was a little break in there somewhere and. Um, I think it was really when you guys were moving around kind of in the wilderness. And, uh, and, and if, uh, several years ago, we were able to repartner with what God's doing. And, um, and you don't know how much it means. You know, I, kn- I know, you know every month there's the mission support, but knowing that you're praying for us and knowing that we're not alone in a, in a wasteland like Auburn. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's not. It's not. It's an amazing place. Um, means more than you'll ever know. And so I'm really thankful to, to be here this morning. It, you know, uh, John and the missions people asked me uh, about a month and a half ago, and, and it was uh, before, uh, obviously, all this stuff has happened with John's family. And, um, you know, I don't know if you believe in providence, but it seems that way. God's providential understanding and knowledge of things and... Um, and so it's worked out great for that, that I'm here this morning, and uh, well, maybe good. <laughs> You'll determine that. But um, yeah, and we're certainly praying for John and his family um, in a what's got to be a very difficult time. Uh, if you would pray with me, we're going to read scripture and and jump into John chapter 21. But I'd really like us to pray first. So, Father, we're thankful for this day, and we're thankful that. Uh, you're the Alpha and Omega. You're the God who gives us life. You're the, the Father who's intimately involved with us, uh, who never lets us go. Lord, we pray today that you'll open our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say to us. We've already been confronted with your majesty and your grace and your love now open our eyes even more through your word, God, I pray, through your Holy Spirit, do what you want to do in this place. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a, we're going to read together, I think, a rather long passage from the Gospel of uh, John. It's chapter 21. Uh, you all have been working, I think, through this year in, uh, under the theme Close Encounters, and today we want to talk about an encounter, a very important encounter that Peter had with Jesus. Afterward, beginning in verse 1, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples 
by the Sea of Tiberias, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, who are who? James and John, right? Uh, the disciple Jesus loved, who, by the way, is the author of this book. And two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with a fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net wasn't torn. Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Can you imagine, can you imagine what it was like to be Peter post-resurrection? I mean, I'm sure it was bad enough when Jesus was hanging on the cross. I'm sure it was bad enough when they put him in the tomb. But can you imagine what it was like realizing that the one you had betrayed was still around? The one you had denied is still around? Can you imagine what it's like to be Peter? 
You know, the hard reality has smacked him in the face. This is, this is the one who was chosen first in some way by Jesus himself. The first one who said, okay, I'll follow you. He's one of the three who are the inner circle of Jesus' closest companions. He's the, the, the one who was in on the inside in Jesus' group. The one who witnessed things that even others didn't get to witness. This is the one who, before any other person in the Gospels, confesses Jesus as Lord, as Messiah. This is the one who, uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the Last Supper, right? This is the one who, who commits himself to never leaving his friend. To being willing to go and die with his friend. And yet this is the one who in the hour of Jesus's, almost the hour of his greatest need. When, when Peter's moment to shine as a follower of Christ comes along, he fails. He, and he didn't just fail. Peter failed miserably. Right? Miserably. Can you imagine, can you imagine being Peter? And it's really not funny. Can you imagine being Peter standing in the garden, unable to say four simple words? I was with him. And then to see the eyes of Jesus lock on him. Can you imagine the immense shame, the hurt, the, what, what must have been crushing, crushing despair, the weight of his failure? Scripture says, Scripture says that Peter ran away and wept bitterly. I, this wasn't just he went away and had a good cry. It was gut-wrenching. Despair. Can you imagine? You know, uh, it's interesting. There, there are, uh, in the Gospel of John, there are three resurrection appearances. Times when Jesus shows up to meet with his disciples, right? So he's, he's dead, he's tried, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. And three times it's recorded. This is one of them in chapter 21. But but twice before Jesus has shown up, when all the disciples are present, right? They're, they're hiding. Let's face it. They're, they're really still kind of unsure what's going on. So they're in hiding. They're staying in the upper room where they had the Last Supper, somewhere nearby like that. But he shows up twice in a week. And, and, and the only one that's noted that is not there is Thomas. Remember the story of Doubting Thomas, right? Thomas isn't there the first time, the second time. That means that Peter is there in that room when Jesus shows up. But from the, from the Passover meal, the, the episode in the garden, all the way till we get to John 21, you never hear a word from this apostle. The one who is, by all accounts, the leader of the apostles. You never hear another word from him. 
from the, from the time he says, I don't know him, till this incident on the seashore. He doesn't say a word in that space. And I think it's because as amazing and wondrous and just overwhelmingly, I mean, can you even describe what it would be like to see a resurrected Jesus? I mean, someone, uh, you know, that just blows you out of the frame. But as wondrous as it is, I think it, it in some ways multiplied Peter's shame. I think Peter, in those, in those times when Jesus shows up, I, I think he would have wanted to be anywhere else. You know what I mean? Right? You've been there. It, it, I, I wonder if it's because he's at the back of the room. He's hiding in the shadows. He doesn't want to lock eyes on Jesus again. So there's this anonymity in the Scripture. It's just plain silence. The, this bold, brash, I'll die with you, you know, is never mentioned. He doesn't say a word. Now, all of a sudden, in chapter 21, here he is with six other guys saying what? Oh, I don't know about you guys, but I, I guess I'm going fishing. Why? Well, it's what he was doing before Jesus, isn't it? It's what Peter did before Jesus came along. It's the life that he had before Jesus. And so what else is a failed disciple supposed to do? Whatever dreams and plans that Jesus had inspired in him, had given him, had called him to, well, I guess I can't do that now. Peter had failed. Worse, he had failed Jesus, his Lord. I wonder if in Peter's mind he was wondering whether maybe Jesus was just wrong about him. You ever been there? You know, he he just, maybe he just realized that he was not the man Jesus thought he was. Wasn't able to do what Jesus thought he was able to do. Not the person Jesus believed he could be. Or that maybe he had even begun to think he was or believe he was. So all that's left for him to do is to go back to the one thing that he knows he's probably not going to fail at. Fishing. It's comfortable. It's easy. Most of the time it's successful. But as they get in the boat... I think they have no idea. I think Peter has no idea. This crushed by failure man has no idea that though he may have thought his uh, dreams were over, that he had blown it, that he'd missed his chance, that he failed beyond hope. Though all those things probably ran through his head and he'd given up on himself, the truth of the matter is Jesus, God in the flesh, has not given up on Peter. He's not giving up on Peter. God has not written him off. I was wondering this week, is there such a point as that? Is there a, is there a point? Is there a, a line? Is there a place that we cross that somehow puts us outside of hope in God's power and God's grace and His mercy? God's ability to redeem and restore and, and use any of us. 
with God, is there a is there a three strikes you're out rule somewhere? You know, is there five fouls or six fouls you get? Is there a, is there a, a number or, a, a, you know, you get one major failure, one, one major character failure, and, and two might put you in jeopardy, but you don't want to get to the third one. There are ten little stumbles that are acceptable, but don't blow it big time kind of stuff. You know, it, it, it's really not, not just a rhetorical question, because I think most of us in this room would say, absolutely not. There's always hope with God. God is a God of second chances. God is the one who's able to, to make all things new again. We would say that, but I wonder if we really believe it. In Sunday school, uh, I, I was t- just talking about uh, campus ministry and the reality that, uh, you know, high school kids, 69% of of high school kids in the United States say that they're heavily involved or mostly involved, regularly involved in Christian ministries, high school ministries of some kind. But by the time they get done with university, the years right after university, less than 18% of them are still actively following Jesus. And you know, you know a, a leading reason for that? It's not that, the, that they've gone to the university and the secular humanist teachers have robbed them of their faith. It's not even that they don't believe in Jesus as God's son or that Jesus has been resurrected or that God's involved in the world. It's none of that kind of stuff. A leading reason is that, that those young people perceive the church as a bunch of hypocrites who, who sit around and judge Everything anybody not like them says or does. And I'm not saying, hear me well, I'm not saying that's accurate. I'm not saying it's totally accurate. I'm not saying that, that somewhere in there there's not the, the element of young adult rebellion in that or that people are looking for excuses. I'm not saying that in any way. But, but you gotta, you got to admit, not all of it comes from those things. I, unfortunately, got to watch a, a major church in the Atlanta area. It was, it was, I think at the time, the second biggest, largest church in, in, in Georgia. Might have been the first. I, I watched that church literally split one night in a congregational meeting over worship music. What kind of worship music we're going to have in our services. And, and it started out rather civilly. Is that a word? It started out rather civilly, civilly. But at this congregational meeting, there were close to 800 people. Tell me when that happens. Right? There were close to 800 people and within 30 minutes of that meeting starting, there were literally people in the aisle pointing fingers, hitting people in the chest, cursing one another. And then they decided to plant another church <laughs> over the type of worship music that was going to be played. I was thinking as I was working on this, we get lots of freshmen connected in our ministry, students that come to Auburn from places like Huntsville Christian Church or, you know, uh, 
Birmingham, you know, Atlanta, they come in to college knowing that they have to take care of their spiritual life. They want to be involved. And so, so they come looking for a place to get plugged in. And, and I love it when we have students like that who love Jesus, want to continue to love Jesus, want to grow, be used in the kingdom. And then, you know, so we get them for, for four years, five years. And uh, they, they stick around with us, and it's awesome. We also, we also get lots of juniors and seniors who find their way into our community. And I was thinking the other day about those people, because most of those juniors and seniors are the ones who've had a sense of being rejected or burned by the church because they didn't go to Bible college like the good Christians in their church did, or because they had questions about the Bible's accuracy or doubts about the existence of God. Doubts about faith, what, whether faith was real or just imagined. Or because they were, were, were not accepted because they weren't pure in whatever sense of the word that means. They felt marginalized or judged by their leaders and Christian, and Christian peers. I, I tell my staff all the time working with college kids at Auburn, uh, and our interns regularly, I don't, I don't see in the New Testament uh, God, Jesus, ever giving up on people. He doesn't ever give up on people. He didn't give up on the woman caught in adultery. He didn't give up on the man who said, if you can heal my son. He didn't give up on the other ten disciples, like Peter, who fled even before they made it to the courtyard. We don't give up on people because God doesn't give up on people. Even, it when, even when it seems that like, you know, they, they take two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward and two steps back. It's so frustrating, you want to rip your hair out, you know? But sometimes the truth is we have to believe for people, especially, especially when they don't know how to believe for themselves or in themselves. Sometimes we have to believe for people when they can't seem to believe in themselves. That's what's happening, I think, with Jesus standing on the seashore. Hey, you guys caught any fish? No. Cast the net on the other side. And the haul was enormous. What, what the Apostle John is reminding us of is, is the calling of Peter in the very beginning, Luke chapter 5, when, when uh, he says, put out, to, put out into deeper water and cast your nets. And Peter says, we've fished all night and haven't caught anything. And he says, but if you say so, Lord, I'll do it. So they cast their nets out. They bring in this hall that's so big, the nets are bursting. What John is, is, is telling us is that it's come full circle now. Jesus told him, I will make you fishers of men. Peter failed. And he thought it was over. But this is not lost on him. And it's over the side of the boat he goes. He's not waiting to row back in. Jesus hasn't given up on Peter. Apparently, Peter's denial, his failure, despite all the things that he said and all the commitments that he made to Jesus, does not shake Jesus' faith and belief in Peter. 
Peter's resignation that he's not worthy, that he'll never be the person Jesus expected him to be, none of it seems to have affected Jesus' opinion of Peter. And it hasn't apparently affected his plans for this fallen disciple. One of the key verses for my life, one of the verses that's meant so much to me, is 1 John 1, 8, 9. You know it? Anybody recite it? If we confess our sin, he's what? He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think about that. Is that an amazing promise or what? That's a promise to you and I through the, the, the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved. How many, how often? How many times? It doesn't say, does it? it? just says if we confess, he's faithful to cleanse us, to forgive us and cleanse us. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman Christians that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul begins that section, Romans 8, that section of Scripture, his letter, with all things work together for good. The better, translation, better translation probably is all things are being worked together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things. All things. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? Is there anything not included in the word all? All things. The testimony of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for us is that adultery is not the final word about us. Lying is not the final word about us. Cheating is not the final word about us. Betrayal is not the final word. Failure is not the final word. Denial is not the final word. Doubt is not the final word. Uncommitted, addict, criminal, sinner is not the final word about us. Especially when it comes to God in Christ. Peter thought it was, but Jesus is not done with him yet. There's this really interesting uh, little, you know, exchange that goes on between Peter and uh, Jesus. Three times in this story, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter says what? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. What's lost in translation in this is that the first two times Jesus says, do you love me? He uses the word agape. Do you love me in a godly way? Self-sacrificing, willing to give everything for my good. Do you love me like that, Peter? And twice Peter, Peter answers him back, Lord, you know I love you, but he says I phileo you. It's really kind of weird. Do you love me like in, in a godly way? Lord, you know I love you like a brother. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me like God loves? Sacrificing love. Lord, you know I love you like a brother. But the third time Jesus asked him the question, he says, Peter, do you phileo me? 
Do you love me like a brother? And Peter exasperatedly says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Okay, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. I've been thinking about that this week. Why? I mean, it's just kind of odd to me. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but why is it like that? And, and, I, and I think what I've, what I've come to is that I don't, I don't think Jesus is lowering his standard. I don't think he's, he's saying, okay, okay, you know, whatever. I think he's just saying to Peter that he can take him where he's at. He can take him where he's at. He, he knows what Peter's been through. He knows the shame. He knows the crushing failure. He knows the regret. There's, there's an honesty in this moment for Peter. There's, there's no, okay, Lord, I'm going to go die for you now. I'm going to get revenge on all your enemies. I'm going to be this great leader. I'll, I, even if no one else will, you know, all that stuff, all that stuff that was there before is gone. Lord, you know, I love you like a brother. That's the best I can do. And that's okay. That's okay. That is, that is as good a place to start on a new day. It's as good a place to restart as any. That, I think, is the beauty of this story. That's the great good news for you and me this morning. Folks, it is not ever over with God. It's never over. It's not over with our fickleness. It's not over with our inconsistencies. It's not over with our failures to live up to a certain standard, to do everything right, to know everything, to get everything down. It's not over. The story is not done. In Philippians, uh, Paul writes, he who, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God is at work. God's at work. And there is no one God cannot use to do the work of his kingdom. He used the murderer, Saul. We know him as Paul. He used the denier, Peter. He used the man who was possessed by a legion of demons. He used an adulterous woman that he encountered one day at a well. There's no one. There's no one who's too far gone for God. There's no one who's gone too far to be redeemed. To be restored, to be resurrected in a sense and used by God. Not even you and me. That's amazing, isn't it? Because we know ourselves. The greater news is God knows you. And the haunting question for all of us this morning is simply, do you really believe that? Do you really believe it?
It's time. It's time to jump out of the boat and run to Jesus. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, it's time to give yourself over to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for this church, and I thank you for this story of this amazing apostle, but even more amazing Savior and Lord. You know, earlier, Father, Lorena prayed, um, you know, don't you love Peter? <clears throat> and um, and we do, but I don't, I don't think we can even uh, grasp. Uh, well, I guess we can, God, because, because lots of us have experienced it in our own lives. And Father, I'm praying uh, on several levels this morning. I'm praying if uh, there's somebody here whose uh, sin, whose failures, uh, whose brokenness has kept them from you. I, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you will speak your words of love and forgiveness and healing into their heart. That today might be a day of salvation. I also pray, God, that uh, if there are those of us who've been on the outside looking in, who need a community, who need a place, who need a home, who need to be loved and nurtured again, who need to be restored, uh, that this might be a day that happens as well. God, we pray for your glory in these moments. We pray to hear your voice. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.